Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God, full of love and mercy, and that you have made a way for sinful people like us to be restored in right relationship with you. And so help me now to preach your gospel, this good news, with clarity, with faithfulness. And may you work in our hearts, bringing us to faith in Jesus and joy and assurance of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, how can we be right with a righteous God? How can we be right with a righteous God? The world around us everywhere tells us that if you want to be accepted, uh, if you want to be praised by others, well, you need to earn it by your own performance. That's like that in the workplace, isn't it? The boss's approval depends on your performance. And if you perform, you'll be praised and hopefully promoted. At school or university, your acceptance into the course, your graduation from the course, it depends on your academic performance. And perhaps even in some marriages, partner's love is conditional on others' performance. It shouldn't be like that, though, should it? Well, we see this works-based understanding of life played out in many areas, not the least in religion as well. Uh, we're taught, and we, we think almost by instinct, that our acceptance is related to our performance. Uh, I remember as I was growing up, I was very unsure of whether or not I could be saved. I knew that Jesus loved me. I knew that he died for me. And if I trusted in him, I could have eternal life. But, but as I was growing up, I'd layered on performance as a measure of success. And so when I was going to church and I was uh, reading my Bible, well, I'd be very confident about my salvation. But when I committed some sin or I hadn't read my Bible for a while, then I started to doubt whether God still loved me. And so I'd go on that cycle that I'm sure many of us are very familiar with. From confidence and joy to guilt and anxiety, depending on my moral and religious performance. I had not yet grasped the truth of our passage this evening, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, that doctrine means the only hope of salvation. It depends entirely on trusting Jesus and his death and not trusting in my own performance. Well, we saw in chapter 1 that Paul intends to proclaim the gospel of God. It's the good news concerning his son, Jesus Christ, descended from David, risen as Lord, to be obeyed among all the nations to the glory of God. And we saw that Paul wants to proclaim this good news because chapter 1, verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But Paul's goal in these first three chapters of Romans is to, to, make, to, be, to make it abundantly clear to us that there's only one category that all of us fall into, and it's the category of evil. Remember chapter 1, verse 18, we saw the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We're told we've suppressed the knowledge of God. We fail to thank him for his goodness. And in chapter 2, Paul explains that God not only judges us now by giving us up to the consequences of our sins, but there's a coming day of wrath when he will judge every person according to what they've done without partiality. 
And his judgment, it won't be based on what we know or what we teach or what religious ceremonies we perform, but by what we do. And uh, last week we came to God's verdict that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. None is righteous, not even one. God's verdict is that we are all guilty, that we're all deserving of his judgment. And so chapter 3, verse 19, where we ended last week, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that everything is stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, knowledge of sin. So the question this evening is, how can guilty sinners like you and me escape the judgment of God and be right with him? Well, point one this evening, God's righteousness comes apart from the law. God's righteousness comes apart from the law. That passage begins with those marvelous words in verse 12. But now, but now, we were sinners without hope. We were headed for an eternity of, uh, uh, under God's righteous judgment. But now, the glorious news of the gospel, God has made a way for us to be right with him. He goes on in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so the Bible declares that we can be made right with God. But this righteousness, it doesn't come from within us. It doesn't depend on our own performance. It doesn't depend on keeping the law. The solution is not to try harder. The solution is not to do better. In fact, the law will only ever show up our sin. It will never lead us to salvation. He goes on in verse 22. There is no distinction for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. God's glory is his character. His, his character of steadfast love and, and faithfulness and, and perfect justice. And compared to him, we've all fallen far short. And whether we're Jew or Gentile or anything else, it, it doesn't make any difference. We're told here, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. His point, we can and never will have a righteousness of our own. God's righteousness must come apart from the law. We can never be right with God based on what we do. But our passage tells us that we can be right with God another way. By faith in what Jesus has done for us. And so that brings us to the second point. Only the death of Christ can make guilty sinners right with God. Only the death of Christ can make guilty sinners right with God. Now, to understand the death of Jesus this evening, we have to contend with a number of very long words. I hope you're ready to follow me. The first of those words is justification. Justification. Have a look again, verse, end of verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, justification, that is law terminology. 
uh, it refers to the handing down of a verdict. Uh, and so if the judge hands down a verdict of guilty, then that means that you have been condemned. And if the judge uh, hands down a verdict of not guilty, that means that you have been justified. You have been acquitted of whatever charge stood against you. So to be justified means to be declared in the right. It means to be not guilty. And so here is the wonderful news of this passage. Guilty sinners who deserve the judgment of God, who fall short of the glory of God, can be justified. They can be declared not guilty before God, even though they are guilty before him, and even though they've done nothing to deserve it. Justification, we're right with God. The second word we have to understand is a little shorter. It's the word grace. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, uh, grace is not just what you say before dinner, is it? Uh, Or it's not just a nice ballet dancing. Uh, The word grace is an undeserved gift, right? Grace is when God gives us something that we don't deserve. See, we are guilty sinners. What we deserve from God is punishment. But God gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us justification as a free gift. Now, if someone gets you a gift, uh, I don't know, Easter's coming up, maybe someone will buy you some chocolate eggs or something like that, I don't know. Uh, say you, someone bought you a gift. Now, when they give you the gift, you don't think to yourself, oh, I'm such a good person, you know, I really earned this gift. That's silly, isn't it? By definition, a gift is something that you, you didn't earn. The reason you have it is because they were kind and generous and they decided to give it to you. What you did meant absolutely nothing. And so you accept it and you say, thank you very much. And so it doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter if I'm a Malaysian or a Chinese or an Australian. It doesn't matter what I've done in the past. It doesn't matter what inner secrets I might be hiding away. It doesn't matter what I deserve from God. This passage says I can stand before God. I can look him in the face. I can hear the words from his mouth, not guilty, not guilty, not because I deserve it, but because he gives it as a gift. Now, the third word we must understand is the word redemption. Redemption, it's in verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, to redeem, that means to to buy back uh, from slavery uh, uh, by paying a price. Now, sometimes we still use that word today, redeem, isn't it? When uh, uh, we talk about redeeming some vouchers, maybe from Tesco or something like that. Uh, But in Bible times, uh, what redemption was about, it was about releasing a slave from their master. You would pay a ransom price and then you would set them free. So imagine this way. Imagine after the service tonight that I was in the car park. And the keepers, they evaluate my you know, good looks and my intelligence and, and you know, my shirt I'm wearing. And uh, a ransom note to St. George's. And they say, I'll let your beloved pastor go if you give me 
20 ringgit. Right? Now, if you paid the price, be grateful. Be redeemed from captivity, I'll be set free. See, that's what redemption is all about. It's about paying a price to release a slave. Now, in the Old Testament, God provided sacrifices for his people. And so during the Passover, they, were, they killed the lamb and they painted the blood on the doorposts. And they were rescued from God's judgment. The animal died so that they could be set free from their slavery. Now, for us, uh, as guilty sinners, we're slaves to something far worse than a Malaysian kidnapper or uh, an Egyptian king. We saw last week we were slaves of sin. Slaves of a condemned life, unable to set ourselves free. But God gives redemption. He sends Jesus to to live the perfect life we haven't, uh, to die on the cross, to pay the ransom price. He dies so that we can be set free. God gives up something of incalculable value, the sinless life of his precious son, to buy back guilty sinners like you and me. See, redemption, it comes to us freely as a gift. God gives it for free by grace. But it's very costly for him. It costs Jesus his life. So redemption, well, how did Jesus pay that price? And that brings us to the next difficult word, propitiation. Propitiation. Uh, We see that in verse 25. It says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, a propitiation, that is a sacrifice that turns away wrath. A sacrifice that turns away wrath. So just imagine tonight that I made my wife very angry. I didn't. I, I believe she's quite happy with me right now. But imagine, right, that I had upset her in some way. What might I try to do to make her happy again? I might try and buy her flowers. I might dapao her favorite panmi and bring it to her. I might offer to clean the whole house, whatever it might be. Right? In order to propitiate her wrath, to turn away her wrath, I might do some sacrificial deed. Uh, Now, in the Old Testament, God set up those sacrifices in the Old Testament so that his people could be made right with him. In particular, on the Day of Atonement, which you can read about in Leviticus 16. On that one day in the year, the high priest, he had to take two goats. And the first one, he would sacrifice it and sprinkle its blood all over the altar in the most holy place. That goat would die as a substitute, taking the punishment that the people deserved. And then the high priest would go out and find the second goat. Must have been pretty scared at that point. (laughs) He would put his hands on the goat and confess all the sins of the people on the goat and then send it away into the wilderness to die. And, and, And those sacrifices were a very powerful imagery. The goat would die in place of the people. It would take their punishment for them so that their punishment might be taken away. They might be totally free. And in that way, they could be restored to relationship with God. Now, of course, 
an animal sacrifice can never really pay for a human sin. And so here we see that God sent Jesus to be the, the perfect sacrifice. On the cross, he takes our place. He takes the punishment that we deserve. He faces God's anger in our place so that God's wrath is propitiated. It's turned away from us. And we are set free. We are made into right relationship with him. Now let me use a bit of an illustration to try and explain this. So say, imagine this, is, uh, this hand is me and uh, the ceiling, well, that's where, that's where God is. Right? And so I have a good relationship with God. Now, imagine this book here. It records all of the evil things that I have ever thought, said, or done. You know, it's quite thick. Our sin separates our relationship from God. And because of all these things that we've done, we deserve his judgment. But God in his love, he sends his son Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus lives a, a perfect life. He has no sin. And yet on the cross, Jesus dies for us. Uh, he dies to take our punishment. All of our sins are put onto him. He takes all the punishment that we deserve. And what does that mean? We're free. We can now be back into relationship with God. And so you see, the cross, it is the center of the Christian life. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. Without Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, there's no redemption from sin. There's no grace from God. There's no justification. Without the cross, there's no hope for sinners like us. There's only a misguided hope that we might somehow be good enough on our own. See, the cross, it changes everything. The cross cuts our legs from underneath us. The cross forces us to abandon any conception that we're actually good people. The cross forces us to fall on our knees before God with empty hands and accept his gracious gift. And as we look at the cross, we can see how a righteous God can justify unrighteous people. The cross perfectly displays the righteousness of God. Uh, look at verse 25. It says, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus' sacrificial death is very important because up until Jesus came, there were all kinds of sins that people committed that were left unpunished. The sins that Abraham did and David did and the Israelites did. But God hadn't ignored all of those sins, even though he forgave them. In his grace, he was storing them up and storing them up and storing them up and storing them up until at one point in history, he unleashed the full extent of his anger on Jesus on the cross. It's a bit like maybe if you were a child and uh, you know, you're playing with a magnifying glass, you found some ants on a leaf, and then you channeled all the sun's energy down and, and, and started a fire on that poor ant. It's like that. God unleashes all his wrath on all the sins of the world, past, present, and future, in one moment, on his son as he dies on the cross. And that means 
that God is just even as he forgives sinful people. See, God doesn't forgive us by ignoring our crimes. That would be unjust, wouldn't it? And God doesn't punish us for our crimes because then he wouldn't be merciful. And so God takes on himself our crimes so that justice is paid for, that mercy is extended. It's an extraordinary idea, isn't it? Impossible for any preacher to truly do it justice. God's Spirit has to bring this to bear on our hearts and minds. At the cross, God's justice and his mercy are perfectly satisfied. The psalm says God's justice and mercy kiss. Well, how shall we respond to all this? I guess the big point that uh, we notice all the way through this passage is the way that we receive this righteousness is by faith in Jesus. Uh, so verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for who believe. Verse 25, God, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verse 26, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So faith is like the open hands that receive the gift. Now, Open hands don't make a gift appear. I mean, that would be wonderful. I just held my hands out here and then all the gifts started piling in. It doesn't work like that. The open hands are merely the mechanism to receive the gift. And so imagine that, uh, you know, I, I, I told Jason this evening that I had put one million ringgit in his account. You know, I give him my ATM card, uh, my PIN, pin code, I think he'd be rather happy about that. All he has to do is trust me, take the card, the money is his. Now, he didn't earn the money, did he? He could congratulate himself and say, oh, I'm a millionaire because I'm such a good person now. No, it's my money. I gave him the card. But he uses the card to withdraw the money. It's like that with faith. As I trust in Jesus... His righteousness is credited to my account. So all the credit goes to him. None of it goes to me. I'm only ever a guilty sinner. But in Christ, I'm a saint. I'm righteous. He's given it to me. Now, that was the great discovery that Martin Luther made 500 years ago, which launched the Reformation, which led to the start of the Anglican Church. He realized that rather than earning our salvation by seeking to be righteous, God gives it by faith. And as Luther discovered this truth, it liberated him. All the burdens of guilt that he, that he carried, they fell away. He knew that he was loved by God, that he was accepted by God. He no longer doubted his salvation. He was totally assured before God. And he would therefore spend the rest of his life fighting for this grand doctrine to be preserved as it has been down to this day. And that's essential. That we continue to do the same today. Because just like in Paul's day and just like in Martin Luther's day, there is a constant temptation to reject this truth. To tamper it, because we're, we're so attuned to thinking that acceptance in life is dependent on my performance. 
And so we can't imagine how it could possibly be any different with God. And so there was a constant temptation to add back on my works on top of the grace of God, to add in something extra that I need to do, something that I need to contribute, some ministry that I need to do, so that I can be proud of my achievements and I can I somehow earn my way, even if it was only 1%. But this passage makes it perfectly clear. We are saved by grace alone. It's God's gift. It's through faith alone, not my good works. Faith in Christ alone. Not through the law. Not through my performance. And so when you die and you stand before God on the judgment day, he asks you the question, why should I let you into my heaven? What will you say? Because I was a good person? Because I was a good Christian? Because I tried to help other people? I went to church every week. I told other people about Jesus. None of those answers are going to cut it, are they? Because they're all about me. They're all about my performance. But I have fallen far short of God's standard. Our only hope is to put our faith entirely in Jesus, to rely on his death alone to save him. Christianity is different from other religions. Other religions are about what you must do. Christianity is about trusting in what Jesus has done. And because of that, you and I can be 100% sure that we will be saved. 100% sure we'll be going to heaven. Not because we're proud people, but because we're depending entirely on Jesus. And he has done it all. I wonder, do you have that kind of assurance this evening? Are you 100% sure that you're going to heaven? Are you sure that you're right with God? If the answer is no, it, it may well be that you have not yet trusted in Jesus, as you should. Perhaps you realize that you have been trusting in your own good works all this time, and being baptized, serving, loving, etc. Perhaps this is the very first time that you've realized that you need to come to Jesus in humility, empty-handed, and receive the salvation that he gives you. And so I urge you, if, you, if you realize you've never done that this evening, no matter how many decades you've been in the church here, put your faith in Jesus as your Savior tonight. You will be right with God. And if you have done that, then make sure you never take your eyes off the cross. Never give in to temptation to start measuring your value based on your own performance all again. Look to the cross and keep bathing in God's mercy and love. And let the cross fill you with joy, fill you with assurance. And as you turn from your life of sin, commit your life to joyfully serving this Savior who has done so much for you. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to praise you and thank you that you have made a way that we can be right with you.
Lord, we confess we have fallen so far short of your glory. And we know that we could never earn our way to heaven. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you for sending your Son to die for us on that cross, that he has taken all our sins, past, present, and future. He has paid the price in full so that we can be set free. Lord, we thank you that we do not need to fear judgment day. Even now we know the verdict you will give, not guilty, because of what you have done in Jesus. And so help us to continue to put our faith in him and assure us that we really will be with you in heaven. We need not fear death. We need not fear your judgment. We thank you, Lord, for this good news. In Jesus' name, amen.